Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with a division of opinion among law professors and legal pundits, some of whom say the indictments against Donald Trump brought by the Manhattan DA are weak, while others say the case is strong. Joining us for an assessment of the legal jeopardy facing Donald Trump is Corey Brettschneider, a professor of political science at Brown University, where he teaches constitutional law and politics, as well as a visiting professor of law at Fordham Law School. He's the author of The Oath and the Office, A Guide to the Constitution for Future Presidents, and his latest book is Decisions and Dissents of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, A Selection. Then, following Trump's primetime speech last night at Mar-a-Lago, but for the optics of a crowd of wealthy members of his private club amid the garish decor and the flag-draped staging. It could have been a mentally ill man on a street corner unleashing a tirade of bitter fury and paranoid delusions as the former president and current presidential candidate made countless fact-free assertions along with incendiary accusations against the family of the judge trying his case in Manhattan and the special counsel at the Department of Justice investigating January 6th and the stolen classified documents. Joining us is Victor Picard, a professor at the Annenberg School of Communication at the University of Pennsylvania, where he co-directs the Media Inequality and Change Center. He's the author of America's Battle for Media Democracy, The Triumph of Corporate Libertarianism and the Future of Media Reform, and his latest book is Democracy Without Journalism, Confronting the Misinformation Society. We will discuss how, even after giving Trump $5 billion worth of free advertising in 2016, the mainstream media is on course to give Trump a similar free megaphone for 2024 to troll, defame and demagogue instead of offering plans, programs, platforms and policies which candidates are supposed to offer. Then finally, we will speak with Matthew Hongels-Hettling, a freelance journalist specializing in narrative features and investigative reporting. He's been named a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize, won a George Polk Award, and has been voted Journalist of the Year by the Maine Press Association, among numerous other honors. His work has appeared in Foreign Policy, USA Today, Popular Science, Atavist Magazine, Pulitzer Center for Crisis Reporting, and the Associated Press. He is the author of A Libertarian Walks into a Bear, The Utopian Plot to Liberate an American Town and Some Bears. And his latest book, Just Out, is If It Sounds Like a Quack, A Journey to the Fringes of American Medicine. And we will discuss America's war on science as libertarians and alternative health gurus have joined forces to create the anti-vax movement, which today has 60% of Americans resisting vaccination. And before we begin, I would like to thank our sustaining listeners whose continued and growing support for Background Briefing enable us to remain independent without corporate underwriting, commercials, paywalls, or constant fundraising as we deliver a daily news analysis by seeking out the most knowledgeable experts closest to the scene to explore three or more major stories and issues in depth with our sound bites and spin. As a dangerous and devious serial liar and selfish sociopath continues to haunt our politics and poison our social discourse, whose angry and armed followers assault our democracy and attempt to impose a tyranny of the minority in lockstep with their fraudulent wannabe mob boss and Fuhrer, 
your monthly donations, large and small, at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or at our tax-deductible non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation at publictruthmedia.org. Contribute to an informed citizenry needed to protect and defend the will of the majority as we work to build a reality-based community in post-truth America. And joining us now is Corey Brettschneider, a professor of political science at Brown University, where he teaches constitutional law and politics, as well as a visiting professor of law at Fordham Law School. He's the author of The Oath and the Office, A Guide to the Constitution for Future Presidents, and his latest book is Decisions and Dissents of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, A Selection. Welcome to Background Briefing, Corey Brettschneider. Thanks, uh, Ian. I'm looking forward to talking to you, especially uh, after such a historic day yesterday. Well, indeed. But uh, what I'm reading from law professors and pundits are that uh, it's sort of a mixed bag. Some are saying it's a weak case that the Manhattan DA has brought, and some are saying it's a strong case. So where do you come down? Uh, that's right. There's a, there's a mix, and uh, I certainly understand the concerns that are being raised by some of the um, professors who are criticizing um, Bragg and think it's a weak case. But I think after reading the statement of facts, my initial instinct was uh, affirmed, which is that Bragg is not going to bring this case without having something quite serious uh, when it comes to evidence against Trump of uh, this specific crime that's being charged. And reading the statement of facts, you know, we still don't know what he has, what the evidence is, but there are a lot of hints there. And uh, I saw enough that I thought, uh, you know, the benefit of the doubt should be given to him. So much rests on intent and what Trump was trying to do in urging the falsification of these business records. And we can't really know how strong the case is until we know the details of what specifically they have. We'll see that uh, if it comes comes to trial, which which of course at this point there's a good chance that it will, I don't see Trump pleading out, and uh, you know that that's really what it comes down to. So there's a lot of speculation. I can certainly explain what the concerns are and how they might be met, uh, but it's really about um, what the evidence is. Uh, there are some arguments that the the sort of even with the best set of facts that the, the law wouldn't apply here. And, and I'm not convinced by that for, again, for reasons that I can explain. But it would be professional suicide for Alvin Bragg to bring a case of such a high profile case against a former president, the first in U.S. history, and lose, right? He Absolutely. would be out of, yeah. voted out uh, in the next uh, election. And not just him, you know, remember, they're career prosecutors. They brought in federal prosecutors with huge reputations. And uh, yeah, the, the idea that they would bring this without having a serious idea of what, you know, what, what the uh, evidence is and, and being, you know, sure that they could get the conviction, uh, I think I just don't imagine that happening. And, you know, I think, frankly, there's a lot of second guessing going on from the outside. We were doing a lot of guessing about what the charges would be. Now we know know broadly what what they are although there's some details missing uh but yeah when it comes down to it it's about the evidence and uh about the common sense that says how are they going to bring this case without really having knocked down arguments about it and there there were i should say you know there were the, the indictment was a little bare bones but there was a statement of facts that was released alongside 
and uh, alongside it. And it really does give an outline as to what they're doing here. They're not just talking about one payment or one check to Stormy Daniels, as has been reported. They're talking about a wider scheme to avoid disclosing um, what what were um, you know what was a, an attempt to, to falsify these records with the aim, and now this is the controversial part of committing a broader crime that was the violation of avoiding the um, campaign finance regulations that exist at the state and federal level. There might also be uh, a charge that um, he was falsifying the records to avoid uh, certain tax uh, disclosures, certain tax payments. Um, that either he or and or Michael Cohen were, were both doing it. Let me say a couple of things. The first is that a lot of the complication here hinges on the nature of what you need to charge a felony. Nobody disputes the fact that there's a misdemeanor here of falsifying the business records. The controversy is whether or not you can uh, bump that up to a minor felony. And to do that, you've got to show that the records are being falsified with the aim, the intent of trying to um, avoid uh, being caught for a bigger crime. Now, what is that bigger crime? Uh, it could be campaign finance laws at the state or federal level. It also could be tax laws. Um, so, so you know, that's that's the wider issue. But I guess the wider issue, though, is that does the law take into account the ramifications of the hush money payments in the sense that Trump may well not have been elected had he not paid off Stormy Daniels. I mean, obviously, Comey helped Trump with his last-minute appearance, which Hillary Clinton blames on her loss. There are other factors, but after the Access Hollywood tape, Trump was certainly right. on the defensive, and maybe right. have a porn star going public describing a sexual encounter with Donald Trump might have uh, peeled off enough evangelicals for him to lose. So are consequences right. taken into account? I think the, the, the wider issue, which you're, you're pointing us towards quite rightly, is, you know, what was the purpose of this falsifying this record of creating this scheme where they wouldn't be honest about what these payments were for? They were pretending that they were uh, payments to Michael Cohen for legal fees and, and legal services when they were really these... Uh, disclosures. And what the what the statement of fact shows and what you help the listeners to see, too, just in what you said, is that this was taking place at a very crucial moment in the campaign. The uh, Access Hollywood tape had come out, and Trump is really conscious of the fact that if these three, and it's not just Stormy Daniels, it's a uh, payment to um, a second woman to uh, keep her from talking about uh, their sexual relationships, and it's also, you know, kind of surprise, a payment to a doorman who claimed to have knowledge of a uh, child born to Trump out of uh, wedlock. And so it would have been three stories right in the wake of Access Hollywood that he thought um, would have killed his campaign. That's the argument. So why was he going through all this trouble to spend almost a half a million dollars to cover up all of these um, problems uh, to cover up the, these these three uh, events. And, and the, the common sense thing is he wanted to win. And this wasn't all of a sudden, I mean, some people might argue, for instance, well, his intent was to protect his reputation generally or the, or the Trump uh, organization, the business. But no, I, it looks from the, from the statement of facts that the timing plus the information they 
have about what his intent was, was all about the election. And that uh, arguably would be enough to show that the reason they were um, faking these business records was to try to avoid getting caught for violating campaign finance laws, that these were really campaign contributions over $430,000, way past the limits uh, that are allowable under federal law. Um, so, you know, that's what's going on. There's one other, and I should say, huge point against those that think that this is, you know, somehow a miscarriage of justice or not a serious case, which is that Michael Cohen has already been convicted, pled guilty to the same crime. And the idea that the person who directed it and the statement of facts clearly show he didn't just act on his own. In fact, he was getting a lot of pressure to not admit what happened, directed to do all of this from Trump. Uh, th there's just a lack of um, of uh, uh, parity under the law, a lack of equality that one person would go to jail and one person not go to jail simply because of his power and the fact that he was president of the United States. If the idea that no person is above the law means anything, it means that people are treated equally for the same offense, not just let go because of their power. So that that's the deeper point here, that one person has already been convicted um, of these crimes. And uh, it, it stands to reason that, you know, the Department of Justice certainly dropped the ball. They should have brought it. They should have brought the case against Trump. But what's going on here is that Bragg is picking it up and um, uh, coming through. Um, but it's already been done once. I think it could be done again. But of course, in a curious way, you can make the argument that Trump had no choice but to pay her off because had he listed the payoff as a campaign finance expenditure, those don't automatically go public. So I find <laughs> I'm not defending the guy, but it's a little, yeah, a little ironic, isn't it? Right, right. Yeah, but that's why there are rules. You know, I mean, I think when it comes down to it, this look. Let's be honest here. This isn't as serious as inciting an insurrection. Uh, it isn't as serious as the uh, Georgia grand jury case. Um, uh, but it is about our democracy and about the rules that govern it. And we have rules that limit the amount of money that you can give, have disclosure requirements. And if he's just willy nilly disregarding them because he thinks he's above it all, which is what this statement of facts looks like, uh, we've got to take that seriously and, and enforce these laws there. Uh, they might seem, you know, minuscule in their detail, uh, but they're connected to a wider idea that Trump has just opposed. And that's the idea that in a democracy, we have rules that govern for all. And, and he doesn't care about that. And it's one instance in which he's we're just seeing one of many instances where we're seeing uh, a, a flagrant violation of the law. Well, the other thing that he's flagrantly violating, which is just mind boggling, is that the judge yesterday did warn him not to incite violence and not to make personal attacks and and cited the example of the of the baseball bat that he had holding up uh, against a portrait of Alvin Bragg who Trump called an animal and lo and behold Trump has a has a a, a rally down there in Mar-a-Lago after he got back from the New York court appearance uh, and he goes after the the judge, but he goes after the judge in a deeply personal way by attacking his daughter. So what's going on with Trump? Is he trying to be held in contempt? 
he has a long history of obstruction of justice and getting away with it, going back to the Mueller report, which, of course, outlined uh, multiple, I believe, more than 10 or 10 instances of uh, obstruction of justice, criminal obstruction of justice. And then the Mueller report, of course, said that he couldn't be charged because of the Department of Justice policy against charging uh, sitting presidents with crimes. Uh, so now he's doing it again. You're seeing the same thing and certainly threatening uh, violence against the judge that's hearing your case. It's uh, textbook uh, obstruction of justice. And um, and yeah, I would hope that this judge at some point gets control of this. I see he doesn't want to politicize things further, but, uh, you know, he's got to defend himself and his family and the justice system. And, you know, the irony of all this could be that uh, maybe Trump does have arguments against um, being convicted for the uh, crimes that he's been accused of. But if he obstructs justice, he might find himself with another clear set of crimes that he's uh, uh, guilty of. And, and no, if you're found innocent of the underlying crime and you obstruct justice, you're still guilty of obstruction of justice. So what do you think then, Corey? Is he simply somebody that can't control himself or is there some strategy behind doing the exact opposite of what the judge recommended, which is uh, not to attack law enforcement officials and incite violence? And, and of course, there's nothing more personal than going after your kids. Right. I mean, you and I have been talking about Trump uh, uh, certainly since he was serving in office. And I think well, our first conversation might have been when he was running. And I had a piece very early on in 2016 called Trump versus the Constitution about his complete, not just disregard for, but hostility to the rule of law. And that's just a theme in his personality that he thinks that lawyers and judges and the legal system are just tools that he can play around with to assert his own power. And you just see that consistently. And of course, he's going to do it in this trial and the Department of Justice trial that hopefully will be uh, coming soon and, and uh, the trial in Georgia. And, uh, you know, to me, the lesson of the Mueller report is you can't let this guy get away with it. He should have been indicted for that, at least for obstruction of justice um, in outlined in part two of the Mueller report and not doing it just invited him uh, to commit more crimes. And, you know, I'd go further than that. If you go all the way back to the Nixon pardon, that was a uh, message to future presidents that uh, you could get away with impunity of committing serious, the most serious crimes. And uh, Trump, you know, sees Nixon as, as too weak. He should have been stronger in his opposition to the attacks on him. And uh, we've really got to find a way to rein in that out of control idea that the imperial presidency can be mixed with a criminal element and uh, that Trump wants to keep, continue to use that idea in his post-presidency. But just in closing, though, Corey, you said that you, you can see it, and you and I can see it, and a lot of people see who, who this man is, a serial criminal and serial liar. But why don't so many other Americans see it? In fact, they see something quite the opposite. They see a martyr and a hero. Well, I think that, uh, unfortunately, with a segment of the population and uh, – you know, the segment tends to be about 40 percent of America, the voting population, uh, that they find the hostility to the rule of law, the hostility to democracy appealing. The racism, the um, disregard of the rules, uh, the sort of uh, crazy megalomania 
all of those have an appeal. And um, that's been the unfortunate reality of the last five years that we thought that things that should have disqualified you, like the um, Access Hollywood tape, um, and like these three things that we're now finding out would, would destroy somebody politically. And, and in his case, he really betrays that. He, he shows that logic not to be right. The, um, you know, research shows about corruption that if, if politicians credibly accused of corruption, the political science literature says that that destroys a career. But Trump has a habit of being the exception to trends and, and rules. And uh, my worry here is that, you know, I would hope that the indictment is going to hurt him with swing voters, but certainly in the short term, it might solidify his base. Well, let's hope it doesn't become the new normal. And mm -hmm. I, I yes. thank you for joining us, uh, Corey Breschneider. Thank you. Always a pleasure to talk to you, Ian. Thank you. Well, thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Corey Brechneider, who is a professor of political science at Brown University, where he teaches constitutional law and politics, as well as a visiting professor of law at Fordham Law School. He's the author of The Oath and the Office, A Guide to the Constitution for Future Presidents. And his latest book is Decisions and Dissents of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, A Selection. We're going to take a restation break. We're back looking into Trump's primetime speech last night at Mar-a-Lago before a crowd of wealthy members of his private club in which he unleashed a bitter tirade of paranoid and fact-free delusions. Well, I'm sitting behind my desk in Washington, D.C. And everyone on cable news is yelling at me And there's only Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Victor Picard, who is a professor at the Annenberg School of Communication at the University of Pennsylvania, where he co-directs the Media Inequality and Change Center. He's the author of America's Battle for Media Democracy, The Triumph of Corporate Libertarianism, and the Future of Media Reform. And his latest book is Democracy Without Journalism, Confronting the Misinformation Society. Welcome to Background Briefing, Victor Picard. Thanks for having me back on the show, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, Victor. And in terms of confronting the misinformation society, Donald Trump is a one-man misinformation machine. I don't know whether you saw his speech that he made last night at Mar-a-Lago after returning from the indictment in New York. It was so bizarre. I mean, but for all of the kind of garish furniture and trimmings and flags and wealthy members of Mar-a-Lago private club, Trump might as well have been a mentally ill man standing on a street corner ranting like a lunatic. He made the most outrageous claims that he lost the election because of Hunter Biden's laptop, that Joe Biden has 17,400 boxes of classified documents stored somewhere in Chinatown. I mean, where does he get these ideas from? It's baffling, and I must confess I only caught a, a small part of the speech, although I read about it a lot today. And, and yet it's completely on brand uh, for what Trump typically says. I think by now we all, including and especially our news media, 
should know what to expect. And I don't think we should be covering him 24-7. It's like return of the Trump show. I think the responsible thing would have been to to not cover this so closely. Uh, and instead, we're returning to the constant breathless coverage that doesn't do anything to enhance our democratic discourse, uh, if anything, quite the opposite. And I really think that's the, the, the conversation we should be having. What is the role of our media in amplifying all this misinformation? But just in terms of what he says, coming from an alternative universe, is there any limit to the absurdity and the lies that would in any way pry some of his base loose? Or do you think that there's just no limit? Because, as I say, I think any reasonable person watching him last night would have been quite disturbed. And the idea that this man was president of the United States and is trying to become president of the United States again is just unbelievable in the context of watching somebody who's clearly deranged making outrageous well, I, I, statements. Absolutely. I definitely agree with that last point that, you know, he should be nowhere near any sort of public office. Uh, and the fact that he is on the cusp of doing so again is quite shocking. Uh, and, I, and I think, uh, you know, for the sake of our democracy, we should be doing everything to uh, prevent that. And again, I think our media play an important role uh, in that process. And I saw that afterwards they were fact-checking and you know, and, and analyzing what he had been saying. But that fact-checking is not going to save us uh, from, from this kind of disaster. I think we need to look more deeply at how we are amplifying his constant misinformation. That's, that's, that's what we really need to be reckoning with at this point. So, Victor Picard, should we start then with the $5 billion of free advertising that the mainstream press gave him in 2016? Yeah, I do think that's a good point to start. It's, it's worth revisiting that because that's essentially what's happening with this constant coverage. It's equivalent to billions of dollars of free advertising for a political candidate. And we know from 2016, the analyses were crystal clear on this point. Trump received three times as much coverage as Hillary Clinton, 16 times as much coverage as Bernie Sanders. And despite all this coverage, content analysis study after study showed that, there, that this coverage was almost entirely devoid of any sort of policy analysis. It wasn't ever a focus on his political positions, the implications of what his policies would do. It was just covering Trump as a personality. And as you noted earlier, he's, he's a a one a, a one man misinformation machine, but he's also he embodies commercial values for mainstream media. Every utterance that he makes causes all kinds of drama and sensation, and this this equates to money in the bank for major media organizations. And I do think that's a good starting point when we try to make a structural critique of why our media are constantly covering him in this way. It's not simply because that's what we want. It's what advertisers want. It's what the corporate owners of these media outlets want. And that's, that's a good starting point for any kind of critical analysis. But last night's rant at Mar-a-Lago was entirely devoid of any policy. Not that that's a surprise. It was all a grievance. And is there any way that given that he's a presidential candidate running for office, that the media can have some ground rules and say, you know, if you're going to be on television, 
you've got to talk about policies. You're running for president. This is not a personality contest about who's the most aggrieved. You're absolutely right. I mean, that in, a, in, a, in an ideal, healthy democracy, this is exactly what our media would be doing. But instead, it recalls what something, it's a, it's, it's a priceless quote from 2016 when the, the now disgraced Les Movies said this constant coverage of Trump's candidacy, quote, may not be good for America, but it's damn good for CBS. This is the CEO of CBS who made that quote. And I just think that that quote captures so much of what's so wrong about our media system. It's driven by these commercial imperatives, which, is, which are constantly trying to enhance shareholder value over democratic concerns. And that's really the, the, the basis of what, you know, what a structural critique needs to do. It's not just a case of bad apples, of bad journalists and bad news organizations. These commercial logics are baked into the very DNA of our media system. So they're going to keep doing this. They haven't learned anything from 2016, and I think we can just expect more of the same. So is this a problem that we have in the broadest sense, Victor Picard, that there are two kinds of people in this world. There are those that earn and deserve attention and those that demand and extort attention. And terrorists and Donald Trump are in the latter category. <laughs> That's, I, I, I certainly uh, wouldn't, wouldn't refute that, although, you know, I'm not... I, I'm not going to try to psychologize Trump or figure out, you know, what's what's driving his motives. But certainly, you know, it's clear what's happening with our media, which is they are simply trying to capture our attention and deliver us to advertisers. And that's always going to be the main motivation of their of their media coverage. There have been plenty of, uh, you know, off the cuff remarks. I'm thinking here of Chris Hayes once publicly, publicly saying that, you know, to cover the climate crisis is basically a ratings killer. And there's just so much concern about ratings. And it's not just a popularity contest. Ratings is, is about how they charge advertisers. That is where they're getting all of their money or mo most of their money. And that's really what's driving a lot of this coverage, whether it's, you know, clickbait online or just trying to sensationalize through cable news media, they're trying to keep our eyes glued to various screens all the time. But is this also the era of the troll in the sense that we've got Elon Musk, who spent $44 billion to buy Twitter just to own the libs. You've got Marjorie Taylor Greene, who's just a hideous troll. And Donald Trump, who's a, an absolute masterful troll. What is it about contemporary society and, and this moment we're in, where trolls flourish. It very well may be the age of trolls uh, that we're living in now. But again, you know, they're all getting an assist from our mainstream media. I mean, you mentioned Marjorie Taylor Greene. I mean, she just had her big show on 60 Minutes. There was, there was no excuse uh, for doing that kind of show so it's almost as if, you know, the, the trolls are being amplified, they're being privileged throughout our news media ecosystem, and we don't have the checks and balances in place to, you know, try to, to uh, remove them or keep them on the margins uh, where, where they belong. 
So again, I think it's a systemic problem. It's a structural problem with our entire news and information system. Well, but the internet incubates trolls, does it not? So are they? Are you saying, Victor, that they're migrating now to the mainstream media? I think they've always been given this this assist. I mean, I think you know Trump is is a great example of of this, where you know it's often blamed on fake news or you know on the misinformation that's being amplified through social media, and certainly that's a contributing factor. But again, I mean, Trump was a creation of commercial mainstream media. Uh, so, you know, I, I do think there's something wrong with our entire system that it's, it, you know, it's, it's elevating these voices. It's, you know, it's, 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 it's feeding the rage. And um, I do think mo- in, a, in a healthy democratic society, we would find ways to try to balance this out. So I mentioned something that might be completely impractical and Pollyannaish, and the idea that in a political campaign, the media ought to set the ground rules that candidates are supposed to talk about their plans and policies. So what else could be done, do you think? I mean, is there any social responsibility? And, and of course, we haven't even brought up Fox News and Breitbart and the right-wing propaganda machines who have no interest in in news. I mean, it's clear from the court filings in the Dominion case that telling the truth uh, for Fox is bad for business. So they're not even in the news business anymore. They're, you know, promoting Trump and basically laying the groundwork for civil war. So what can be done in terms of other rules, or is it impossible to make rules? Where is the FCC? Is, it, is that they just AWOL? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think they've been, the FCC has been systematically disempowered uh, over decades of deregulation and neoliberal governance. And of course, they've, they've always had a pretty light grasp of cable uh, uh, television news media. But nonetheless, I think we do need to have this broader social conversation about what can be done to rein in these irresponsible media outlets. And, you know, I think there's a short-term strategy and a long-term strategy. Short-term strategy is to continue to try to push, you know, to pressure professional journalists to do a better job. And there have been some small improvements um, over the years. At least they will say, they'll use the word lie. You know, they'll actually say that, no, Trump is lying in this case. So they've, they've become a little bit more adversarial, but this has been, these have been baby steps. The more long-term strategy has to be to build out an entirely different kind of media system. And it sounds overly utopian, but I think that's really what our de- democracy depends on. Think of like a radically democratized BBC. If we had something like that in the U.S., I think that could, that could do some good. We're not going to do that tomorrow or any time in the next few years, but we should at least have that on our, on our horizon. Well, that has always been the problem here, isn't it? There's no journalistic standard like the BBC sets a journalistic standard in the UK. And, of course, people like Murdoch have been attacking them ever since. But there's no requirement on the part of anybody to be socially responsible. And it's, you know, only, what, luck that the New York Times seems to be the newspaper of record and and also the Washington Post owned by a billionaire. Media owners 
from their point of view, particularly on, on terms of television, revenue comes from advertising, expense comes from content. If they were given their way, they would have wall-to-wall advertising, wouldn't they? Uh, this is true, and it's also the reason why our major cable news outlets do almost no actual journalism. Um, it's all commentary, because good journalism is expensive to produce. It's also why most of our newspapers are dying. Um, so, you know, we mentioned earlier that we're in this age of trolls. We're also in this new age of media oligarchs. Uh, and that's, you know, whether we're, we're talking about Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk. So there are so many structural problems here. You also, I think, you know, at least hinted at this idea. We don't have the kinds of policies that we once had for broadcast media. We no longer have the fairness doctrine. So we have very few rules of the road that keeps these irresponsible media outlets in check. And these are all major problems, um, you know, but I do think we have to start calling them out. These, this is the beginning of a, a structural reform project. We can't just be reacting to, you know, what some outrageous thing that Trump said. We have to really look under the hood to figure out why his voice is being elevated above everyone else's. But just in closing, is there any regime that could create a fact-based regime in post-truth America? I think the only way we're going to see that happen is to see it as part of a broader re-democratization process. So there needs to be a pro-democracy movement that sees media as a core part of that strategy because we're not going to get anywhere without a viable media system. But I don't think we're going to be able to do this just through fact-checking or even trying to shame journalists into doing a better job. We need a systemic overhaul. Well, Victor Picard, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Victor Picard, who's a professor at the Annenberg School for Communication at the University of Pennsylvania, where he co-directs the Media Inequality and Change Center. He's the author of America's Battle for Media Democracy, The Triumph of Corporate Libertarianism and the Future of Media Reform. And his latest book is Democracy Without Journalism, Confronting the Misinformation Society. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking into America's war on science as libertarians and alternative health gurus have joined forces to create the anti-vax movement, which today has 60% of Americans resisting vaccination. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Matthew Hongles-Hetling, who is a freelance journalist specializing in narrative features and investigative reporting. He has been named a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize, won the George Polk Award, and has been voted Journalist of the Year by the Maine Press Association, among numerous other honors. His work has appeared in Foreign Policy, USA Today, Popular Science, Atavist Magazine, the Pulitzer Center for Crisis Reporting, and the Associated Press. And he's the author of A Libertarian Walks into a Bear, The Utopian Plot to Liberate an American Town and Some Bears. And his latest book just out is, If It Sounds Like a Quack, A Journey to the Fringes of American Medicine. Welcome to Background Briefing, Matthew Hongles-Hetling. 
Ian, thank you very much for having me back. Uh, it's an honor. Well, thanks for joining us, Matthew. And last night we saw the former president of the United States, who's now charged with 34 felony counts, returning from the Manhattan courtroom to Mar-a-Lago to be greeted by a crowd of his members of his private club in which he made a completely insane factory rant that, but for the setting with all of the flags and the garish setting and all the wealthy patrons of the club, he might as well have been a mentally ill man standing on a street corner ranting. <laughs> so this is the former president of the United States. We know that at one point during the catastrophic, incompetent mishandling of the COVID pandemic, he recommended you drink bleach and shine an ultraviolet light up whatever part of your body. And you could see the face on the professional woman in charge of the health program, just looking appalled. Deborah um, Burks, yes. And then you've got his his first national security guy advisor out there, Michael Flynn, running around the country, encouraging all this anti-science stuff. So how much is the fact that we've had this president who believes ridiculous stuff, including his own made-up delusions about who's persecuting him, how much has it changed the environment in terms of this war on science? Has Trump accelerated it, or is this something that was growing? No, you know, this is something that was growing, for sure. Um, uh, that's one of the, the things uh, that, that I kind of learned while researching this book, is that uh, during Trump's presidency and late candidacy, uh, we, the broader public, became aware of a lot of very ridiculous things and, and ideas and beliefs. But the infrastructure that has built the, the kind of echo chambers for those beliefs has been growing and growing over the last 20 years or so. Uh, and that's true in a broader sense, and it's certainly true in the realm of quacky fringe medical beliefs. Um, that was um, – and actually, it's funny you mentioned that about Trump. Uh, I, I do cover that in my book. Uh, I tell a very extensive backstory of how he came to be talking about bleach uh, during his coronavirus press briefing. And it's a really wild and – to me, it was a totally unexpected discovery and revelation. Uh, it started in the, uh, let's see, I guess it was, would have been the 90s, uh, where there was an Alabaman gold miner uh, who went by the name of Jim Humble, uh, who began promoting a what he called a health drink, uh, MMS, or the Miracle Mineral Supplement, as a cure-all, you know, uh, among other things that he claimed was that it would you know, kill tiny cancer-causing bugs in the body and thereby alleviate someone of cancer. Uh, and one of the very interesting things about Jim Humble was that he believed that he himself was an alien from the Andromeda galaxy. <laughs> uh, and so I kind of go into his life journey a bit, and he you know, has uh, ups and downs of fortune, a very, very colorful character with very, very strange beliefs, um, who in you know any other administration would not have been given the time of day. Um, but somehow when uh, we, we get a, a Donald Trump in the White House, 
uh, who, who in the book I uh, don't refer to by name. I, I just simply call him the former game show host. Uh, he, uh, his administration was apparently open to uh, backdoor channels uh, to, to receive this sort of health information from this sort of person. Uh, and a partner of Jim Humble's uh, named Mark Grennan, uh, currently in uh, jail, uh, claims that he got Trump an actual sample of this uh, diluted bleach formula uh, and some information uh, advocating its efficacy in coronavirus. And that that is what led to Trump's amazing uh, and very damaging statement from the podium. So let's talk about the growth of the anti-vax movement and the so-called medical freedom movement, because today, in spite of this pandemic and, you know, because of Trump's incompetence and negligence, at least a million people died. But yet today, there's still 60 million people resisting vaccines. Yeah, absolutely. Um, another thing that I was a little surprised to learn in the course of researching my book is that the anti-vax movement didn't really grow itself in kind of like the traditional sense. They were actually the uh, beneficiaries. They received a, a windfall in political thought uh, that was created by an alliance between two separate groups. One were um, some health freedom lobbyists libertarians, the, the Health Freedom Alliance, or Health Keepers Alliance, rather, who in the early 2000s began to very aggressively court uh, the favor and grassroots support of the alternative medicine community, uh, and not, you know, your mainstream, uh, more benign practices like, you know, chiropractic and, and yoga and all sorts of, uh, th those sorts of things. But the, the real fringe beliefs you know, people who believe that you could zap parasites in your body uh, with, with a, uh, what amounted to a car battery scaled down to a human uh, or this this guy selling bleach or another uh, West Coast uh, presence, uh, Robert Young, who believed that you could cure cancer by, among other things, injecting baking soda into the veins to, to reduce the uh, acidity of the body. And so... These um, health freedom lobbyists began to hold things uh, like health freedom expos, uh, where you know, it would be like a kind of traditional alternative healing expo where you walk the aisles and there's vendors selling various you know, uh, doodads and, and treatments and creams and that sort of thing. Uh, but the speaker list would have a mix of alternative healers and these people whose political messaging – was that alternative healers ought to reframe the debate away from the idea of uh, whether or not a, a treatment method is scientifically effective and instead make it more about the right of the American consumer to buy the medical treatment that they wanted. And they did this very effectively and created an infrastructure. And because all of these... Um, People in this movement were united against institutional medicine. Uh, the anti-vax movement, which was more or less dead in the year 2000, you know, there, there was universal bipartisan support for vaccines in, you know, say 1998 or 1999, and the anti-vax movement 
just got fresh life by kind of like hitching itself to, to this other alliance. And under the banner call of freedom, um, they they were able to deeply penetrate uh, the the first the extreme right wing of the Republican Party and then the more mainstream Republican Party. And in your article uh, at The Nation, Matthew, the anti-vax movement and the medical freedom hustle, you point out that tens of millions of rank-and-file Republicans were deluged with targeted shady health marketing claims from the presidential candidates they trusted. Herman Cain urged 330,000 supporters to buy Testomax 200, a Mm one-time cure for erectile dysfunction. Pat Robinson's crowd was tempted with an age-defying protein shake. Ben Carson's followers heard about the Manatech dietary supplement line. Mark Huckabee sold his followers heart disease fixes and diabetes solution kit, while Newt Gingrich pitched a cancer cure that cost just $74 per year. And Alan Keyes began hawking Prevenia, a supplement that would supposedly prevent the cell mutations behind 6,000 diseases. So it seems like the the Republican, at least these candidates, and we mentioned Trump and his medic, bizarre medical advice. What is it about Republican politics and quackery? Oh well, yeah, you know, it's uh, like so many things, all about money, right? <laughs> um, the the uh, once this this kind of baseline was established, where you had uh, folks with money who were selling products. Um, allied with the idea of freedom or, or medical freedom, uh, it created this real financial opportunity for these candidates who were going out there trying to raise money uh, in any way they could. They realized that they could monetize their campaign email lists by uh, renting them out to third parties that that wanted to sell them these uh, all those products that you just mentioned. Uh, and yeah, they would get maybe uh, I forget exactly what the exchange rate was. Yeah, you know, maybe it was something like a hundred bucks for a thousand names or uh, per pitch or, or something like that. But it really had this kind of unintended effect of yeah, like deluging their supporters, their 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 right wing supporters with these advertisements and messages where the implicit uh, message of all of them was that these sorts of treatments are better for you than whatever your doctor is telling you. Uh, And on the left, they also monetize their email lists, but they didn't have a a base that was predisposed to those sorts of messages. So they sold other things, you know, that, that were, you know, maybe uh, environmental products and and things like that. Um, So it was really uh, created a profit potential for Republican leaders. And then of course, conservative talk show outlets and, and media outlets, they would do a, a different version of the same thing where they could just simply sell the product uh, on their websites and, and in their promotional advertising and, and their, uh, the, their radio ads and, and what have you. Uh, and so if you are a devout conservative who's you know really tuned in to those channels and, and have more trust in them, than you do in you know, more mainstream news sources or uh, institutions, uh, then you are going to be completely hoodwinked into the idea that the real way to solve your, uh, your health problems, uh, up to and including fatal diseases, is by pursuing an alternative cure. 
Um, the healers that I spoke to or the practitioners that I spoke to uh, in my book and cover extensively each believed that they had come up with uh, a cure-all, you know, what, what I call the one true cure. Uh, and they each thought that they had just this, this miracle product that was going to revolutionize uh, the, the entire healthcare industry. Uh, one of them thought that they could cure everything with lasers, you know, handheld lasers that he sold for $10,000. Uh, another one, uh, leeches. There was the bleach guy, the baking soda guy, um, faith healers, you know, that they, they all, um, uh, thought that they, he just had this one miracle product. And if you are a person who is suffering a life-threatening disease, uh, that message has both a lot of appeal and a lot of danger. And I'm sure you, you can appreciate that. You know, if I were very sick and very desperate, I'd be looking for uh, good news coming from anywhere. And here were some shady quacks serving it up on a silver platter. Well, it's not unlike the snake oil salesman in the American frontier, right? I mean, most of what they were selling was opium or laudanum. <laughs> uh, which, you know, needless to say, made you feel good, but it didn't cure you. In fact, it, you know, you became emaciated. So you talk about the conservatives, and of course the conservatives believed in the so-called liberal media, and the liberal media, of course, has been helping Trump. They gave them $5 billion worth of free advertising in 2016, <laughs> and are now going to give him probably more for 2024, which we just discussed in the last segment. So... Big Pharma, though, is a legitimate target, isn't it? I mean, I can understand why people could be persuaded because Big Pharma is so avaricious and obviously the price gouging and, and total disregard for people's health, just exploiting sickness as opposed to curing it. And you've got the case of the Sackler family creating hundreds of thousands of dead Americans via their product. Oxycontin. So whenever I have reputable people on, scientists, virologists, etc., talking about COVID, uh, I get angry mail from people saying that I'm a stooge of, or a shill for big pharma. So that's the kind of the fallback position, that if you believe in science and are critical of these new age gurus shaking down people with miracle cures, that somehow you're you know, a tool of big pharma. Is that an explanation? for why people are falling into this trap of alternative medicine because the conventional medicine and big pharma are so odious. Yeah, I mean, believe me, I never thought that I would be going out there saying uh, things that would uh, be uh, put me on the same side as big pharma <laughs> um, uh, because the fact is uh, a lot of the misgivings that you've heard from folks who are hurling those accusations at you are in fact true. Like there's a, there is a grain of truth and more than a grain of truth to the idea that uh, multi-billion dollar uh, or trillion dollar corporations are doing their best to subvert the, uh, both political and uh, scientific processes that ultimately inform your doctor. Um, but uh, we know about these things because there is a, a robust network of watchdog groups and uh, journalists who have uh, held them to account and, and ferreted out examples and 
help shine a light on the more unsavory aspects of it. Uh, and that is a battle that is continuing all the time. Right. And so there's this, there's this constant threat of influence uh, that maybe, you know, a questionable case with a drug gets pushed over the line and, and yeah, you know, so, something is approved that shouldn't be approved. There's something's not approved that should be approved, but there's a big difference between acknowledging uh, that there is some political corporate influence into the medical system and just saying that the entire medical science uh, body of knowledge is so tainted and uh, flawed that you're better off going and taking uh, your medical advice from a guy who believes he's an alien from the Andromeda galaxy, right? Like none of those uh, folks in in the robust network of watchdog groups and uh, investigative journalists has found that there are, you know, these kind of like, wholesale efforts to sicken people um you know for for the express purpose of like keeping down the human race which is what the uh more extreme versions uh, of fringe alternative medicine would uh have us believe so you know they, they've taken a nugget of of truth and they've gift wrapped it in this box of conspiracy theories uh that just goes completely beyond the pale uh, and I'll also say uh, about the system, you know, it, it's a little bit like the Matrix uh, movies in which I don't know how acquainted you are with the mythology of that. But the basic idea is there's this you know, evil computer simulation uh, machines that, that are running the world and the kind of like intractable, irreducible flaws in that uh, computer system are channeled into the the protagonist of the movie neo who was played by keanu reeves and in the same way uh our system has many flaws that are embodied by this kind of army of of quacks and fringe practitioners who are out there doing all this damage you know i guess it's a, another way of saying the system gets the opponents that it deserves and if we had a very functional very accessible uh, healthcare system in this country, there would be a lot less oxygen uh, to allow some of these more outlandish, more harmful quacks from getting traction and uh, wooing their victims. Well, Matthew Hongos Hetling, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Uh, Ian, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for the good work that you do. You bring an important voice and perspective to the air, and I'm so glad uh, to to have this opportunity to speak. Well, thank you, Matthew. And again, I've been speaking with Matthew Hungles Hetling, who's a freelance journalist specializing in narrative features and investigative reporting. He's been named a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize, won a George Polk Award, and has been voted Journalist of the Year by the Maine Press Association, among other honors. His work has appeared in Foreign Policy, USA Today, Popular Science, Atavis Magazine, the Pulitzer Center for Crisis Reporting, and the Associated Press. And he's the author of A Libertarian Walks Into a Bear, The Utopian Plot to Liberate American Town and Some Bears. And his latest book just out is If It Sounds Like a Quack, A Journey to the Fringes of American Medicine. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org. 
where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305.